Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Elizabeth M. Etram, titled Teaching Empire, Native Americans, Filipinos, and the U.S. Imperial Education, 1879 to 1918, published by University Press of Kansas. Dr. Etram teaches history at Brookdale Community College. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about what this book is about? Sure, yeah. So this book, Teaching Empire, grows out of my dissertation. It traces the history of American teachers who the U.S. government hired to uh, assimilate and acculturate to American culture around the turn of the 20th century. So it's specifically about teachers who were hired to work at the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania, and then also sent to the Philippines beginning in 1901. So what was the research process for this project like? It was long. It was uh, so at the time, the the book took about 10 years to write uh, several years of research. um, And I was a young mom at the time. So I had young children, I should say. Um, So many of the research trips involved turned into family vacations. We w- I remember the first trip I went to uh, was the Carlot no the um, Cumberland County Historical Society. Um, I and then went to New Haven, Connecticut, to the Beinecke, to Michigan, to Missouri, to the Personnel Research Center, to the National Archives in DC and Maryland. So kind of went all over. Um, the process was because I often had my kids with me, I would uh, be there for a week or a few days and just take as many photos as I could of the material and bring it home. Um, but I was looking at personal diaries and letters as well as federal government documents. So, uh, but it was really, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that research process of going to the archives. Um, and I was happy that my husband came along to watch the kids while I was at work. <laughs> oh yeah. That's, you know, <laughs> that's the hard work. And then when you read through all of it, right. Is that when the story kind of bubbled up for you? Yes, absolutely. The first um, archive I went to uh, was small, a Cumberland County Historical Society in Pennsylvania. And um, I remember I was looking through the uh, school newspapers of Carlisle, 
scanning through microfilm, seeing if anything caught my eye, taking notes. And this one teacher, uh, Clara Donaldson, uh, it was talking about her as around 1914. And it said, Clara, we welcome Clara Donaldson, essentially didn't say these words, but we welcome Clara Donaldson, who's just coming from the Philippines to join the faculty at at Carlisle. And so even though I knew my my project was relevant, that these two case studies worked well together, and when I and my advisor said, Well, I wouldn't have let you do the project had you <laughs> had you not had it not been legitimate. But seeing that there was this person who actually literally came from teaching in the Philippines and then was being hired to teach at Carlisle, I I, I literally stood up and jumped up. I was so excited. I, you know, I called my advisor and telling everybody how excited I was to have this person who experienced both imperial projects. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the research and the writing. It's hard, but, but I enjoy it. Yeah, because, you know, and, and so when you have like that aha, like that eureka moment, right, then you, you can see that these two schools, even though they're geographically so far apart, there was some kind of a ideological connection. Right, absolutely. Yeah, so you know, the Carlisle was founded in 1879. It was the first off-reservation Indian boarding school, and this was a really big deal. Founded by Richard Henry Pratt, and it was purposely removed very far away from the reservations out west. Right, so it's bringing Indian and Native American children to the school. Um, and that became the model for many more uh, boarding schools and then this Indian school service. Uh, it, it was right very traumatic uh, for the Native families. The Philippines project is different in that American teachers were sent to the Philippines. It was the first time the U.S. government sent teachers abroad, right? This is during war. Uh, so the Filipino-American war was still ongoing. and uh, But it was this, we need to spread uh, the American knowledge and um, white culture to the Filipino peoples to help appease them. So in both cases, it was an effort by the government to appease, to assimilate, to acculturate Native peoples, Indigenous peoples whom the U.S. government wanted to uh, become part of, you know, to not resist their authority, to um, to sort of become quote unquote, American um, in how the U.S. government viewed that. And uh, to sort of in the in the language of the time period, it was to resolve the, quote, Indian problem. The problem being that Native peoples, A, still existed, B, were still, you know, resisting the authority of the U.S. government. And in the case of the Philippines, the Filipinos, while some of them were, you know, supportive of the U.S. government, largely many were not, right? They, they initially welcomed the American intervention to a certain degree um, when getting the Spanish out. But then when it came to the next phase of the war and the Filipino-American war, there was a lot of resistance. Um, so, yeah. So when they're sending teachers to the Philippines... Were these male teachers, female teachers, both? Both. Uh, in fact, for the Philippines, there was an emphasis on recruiting male teachers. So it was both men and women. Uh, it was believed that men were better suited for the quote unquote rugged conditions of island life. And so uh, there was a, you know, there were some married couples that came together. Um, 
And then, you know, some of the teachers themselves surprised the government. And so there were some teachers that were remarked upon by male colleagues saying, wow, she's a really, she, she did it. <laughs> she was quite capable of, you know, of living uh, without, you know, water and shelter and, you know, in sort of remote locations. Um, it's kind so. of interesting, right? In like colonial history, when we kind of look, think about world history and you think about the whole colonial process in the 19th and 20th century that often women, it was considered too dangerous for women to go to the colonies. Right. So did right. this kind of mark, a, was this sort of a unusual uh, policy to allow women to go teach there, you think? I, th I That's a really good question. Probably uh, because they were teachers and there, you know, in the time period, women had become to dominate the teaching industry. So there were more female teachers. Um, and there's also a sense that, um, you know, women teachers, that this was a, a practice of a, a benevolent assimilation, that this was, we're not here to dominate you, right? Uh, and so that perhaps women teachers would be able to, through the classroom, through schoolwork, uh, welcome and sort of indoctrinate Filipinos into you know, th there was that, you know, assumption that women had that sort of natural tendency, even though we know that that's not necessarily true. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of values do you think these teachers were tasked with uh, imparting, you know, so that were they, you know, were they kind of given a set curriculum and, and, and kind of encouraged to teach certain things? Right. It, it kind of changes over time and it's uh, different in the different locations. Carlisle um, was very much, it came to, soon after it was founded, it came to be English only so that uh, students were penalized if they didn't speak English in the classroom or even in their dorm rooms. Um, and so that was certainly part of the curriculum. Uh, a lot of the curriculum was um, teaching industrial skills in both locations. Uh, but the teachers that I I focused on were largely doing the the English education um, and but in terms of those industrial skills it was then gendered so boys were taught to do sort of more manual labor women young girls were taught to do sort of the domestic tasks um, and then in the Philippines similarly English was the pre predominant uh, curriculum and uh, it you know to varying degrees of success you know right <laughs> and you talk in the book about uplift so sure. what does that mean yeah yeah so this is a time period where there are a lot of reformers believing that they can improve uh themselves and the culture around them and the peoples around them right so it's kind of that lift yourself up by the bootstraps mentality um and you've got people from all different kinds of organizations doing various kinds of reform work but an education falls into that as well uh so you have this idea that if we can go and just teach people these skills uh, then they can embedder themselves and in the case of the uh, Indian schooling, the assumption was that this could be done really quickly, that within a generation, if you could teach Indian children, English, white values, Christianity, et cetera, then they would teach their families. They would go home to the reservation, teach their families. And within a generation, voila, the Indian so-called problem is gone. You have people assimilated. Of course, that didn't happen. So uh, of course, there was a lot of resistance and resilience of Native communities. Um, uh, so that did not happen. <laughs> right. So, so can you talk a little bit about the resistance? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Carlisle, uh, children would do simple things uh, in, in one level. Um, there was a, actually a case where there was a fire that was discovered <laughs> in a room. Uh, so maybe that's that's beyond simple arson. <laughs> but um, there were certainly cases of a lot of runaways was, you know, very dramatic uh, resistance. Um, and it, children continuing to speak their native tongue would be something that was would happen. And there was actually a teacher in the later years, Verna Dunnigan, who she wrote about how she actually tolerated that she she thought it was okay and and good better for the children to be able to speak in their native tongues than to so she would sort of look the other way um other in the philippines uh resistance i mean uh involved not going to school it was really hard to get the kids to come to school and there are all of these holidays that the american teachers didn't recognize as being valid and so they were always desperate to try to get children to come to school. And then of course, in the Philippines with ongoing warfare, um, that was a huge interruption. So, uh, I mean, the resistance of, of students not going to school because there was, it was too, um, too violent um, and, and teachers actually taking up arms uh, is, was really surprising to me in my research. Yeah. And, and so, you know, when you look at, at the end of the day, um, how would you evaluate if whether it was successful or not? You know whether the schools and the teachers are successful, or if the if the indigenous Filipinos and the indigenous Native Americans are successful in resisting. You know, mm -hmm. any do you have any thoughts on you know at the at the end of the book, like how you how you felt about those two kind of those two forces pulling against each other? Yeah, I mean, um, unfortunately, the schooling was certainly successful in um, in imposing trauma, right? So in family separation, for example, for indigenous families in the United States, um, the separation of families and the disruption of learning native tongues is something that uh, many native peoples talk about today, uh, having lost that, um, and that the trauma that many Native peoples feel if their own families were impacted by going to a boarding school. Um, in fact, there was a news story today about that uh, as Deb Holland um, was going around listening to those stories. Uh, and so, yes, it was successful in imposing white values, but at the same time, there was a lot of resilience and resistance, right? So you have people who come out of these boarding schools who learn uh, English and they sort of form this pan-Indian movement, right? Um, they learn very, many of them very eloquently to, to use that language to then fight back and resist the policies that were decimating uh, native peoples. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that this is like the ongoing, uh, story of your book, you know, that this is how your book really continues to be important to inform us today of, of how we move forward and how we heal as sure. a society. And, uh, to really, to really look at it, I think is, is so important for students and for, for academics alike to, to learn these stories. And you, include the story of a Native American activist 
Zikalasha in in the book. Can you talk a little bit about her? She's sure. she's really well known. She was a she was a Google Doodle after all. <laughs> <laughs> I must have missed that day, the Google Doodle, but I'm glad she was. Um, yeah, so she um, came from uh, the Yankton Sioux Dakota Reservation, uh, and she ends up going to uh, not a uh, not a an, uh, not a federal government boarding school, but she goes to a, a boarding school, a white boarding school. Uh, actually, her father is white; her mother is Native American. She she wants to go to this boarding school, but then she has a difficult time when she's there. Uh, she then later um, becomes a teacher at Carlisle, and it is at during her time as a teacher that she starts to have more of this struggle, and it comes out in writing. And so, as she's a music teacher at Carlisle, um, she's invited by one of the teachers, Mariana Burgess, to go out west and to help recruit students for Carlisle. And this is really hard for her. She realized, you know, that is like a an example of where she she comes, she doesn't want to recruit children, right? So, and many of the students, she had a good rapport with them. She was well-liked, but she ends up, you know, in 1900, writing these vignettes that were published in the Atlantic Monthly uh, that severely criticize the whole Indian school movement. And, and it's through her own personal story. So she, I mean, those of you who haven't read these, I, I would encourage you to read them. They're so powerful. She writes beautifully um, and, you know, really just castigates the, the pale faces, the, the white people who have indoctrinated native children, taking them away from their home, tricking them into doing, you know, doing, doing this and then torturing them. You know, she has this story of her braids being cut off or her, her hair, I should say, being cut off and how traumatic that was how her spirit was lost. Um, so she writes these stories and publishes them while she's at Carlisle under a name, Zikala Sa, that was her, her pen name. She, her uh, name at the time was Gertrude Bonin. And, and so when it comes out that this is her, there's obviously a big, uh, you know, the, the superintendent is not pleased um, and she ends up leaving. But um, her time at Carlisle, I think, was a pivotal moment in her own life story, as well as in this narrative of the Indian school movement. Um, and it, it soon after, and a couple of years later, Richard Henry Pratt, the superintendent, leaves. There's a big federal, you know, uh, shift in how the federal government uh, runs these schools. Um, so it's it's really quite. Her story is incredible. It really yeah. is. She's a, she's a fantastic story. I really, I love including her in my course too on, in women's history. Yeah. And, you know, I was, one of the things that also uh, prompted me to ask a question about her name, because, you know, she has an Anglo name and she has a Native American name. And is that, you think, another way of kind of imposing Absolutely. U.S. culture, right? Absolutely. And and she actually, you know, she remains very much involved throughout her life uh, to defend Native American rights and, and vie for citizenship. Uh, she maintains contact with uh, one of the teachers, that same Mariana Burgess, who had, who had invited her West. 15 years later, there's correspondence between Mariana Burgess and Zikla Shah. And um, I, I was, that's, this isn't in the book, but I was recently reading these letters and writing about it. And so Zikla Shah is using her relationship with people that she knows from her past and her reformist work to advance her cause. Uh, so she's a very complicated person, but mains, re, maintains throughout very committed to 
uh, fighting for her rights and her people's rights. Right. And it comes up again in, um, in the suffrage movement too. Like, you know, Native American women do not, are not enfranchised. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, so she becomes a a really important figure in following her through this whole story. And uh, it's, it's really great. So did, did these schools experience any scandals, like any pushback in, in terms of their own in society? Yes. Uh, so at Carlisle, there were a series of scandals. One of them, the, the superintendent that followed Superintendent Pratt, was his name was Mercer, William Mercer. He was actually found to be having a sex scandal, an abusive scandal with a, a student. And, um, you know, it's the records are really quite you know, disturbing when you read them. Um, and so he was forced out and there were the, some of the teachers, what the nurse and one of the teachers, Ann Ely, really were the ones that got him pushed out because uh, you know, they came across this and they would not back down. He tried, tried, he tried to come back, et cetera. So that was one. Uh, we know that there are other cert- certainly sexual abuse uh, as well. Another big scandal at Carlisle was uh, with the, the next, another superintendent, Friedman, who there were congressional hearings, uh, and I think it was 1914, if I remember correctly, um, over the mishandling of Carlisle. And so there's, you know, these hearings where you hear from teachers who are just saying how terrible Friedman is. There was this mismanagement of money. And then, you know, recent scholars, some have said, well, maybe this was an anti-Semitic, you know, where does anti-Semitism fall in this? this narrative. Um, but that was certainly a huge thing. And, 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 and in those um, congressional hearings, accounts of the number of death and disease that and sanitary conditions, lots of things come up uh, in terms of scandal. And for the Philippines, there wasn't that kind of scandal. There's a story, uh, there, there's this couple, Mary and Harry Cole, uh, were a couple that went to the Philippines. Harry had gotten a job and then his wife got a job there as well. Uh, in their diaries and letters home, they're very uh, anti-Filipino. They're very racist, very, very overtly racist and saying uh, lots of negative things um, towards the end of their time there. So they're they're in the Philippines for about three years. Um, they come across a priest who has been abused, uh, tortured by American soldiers and in their writings, they are so horrified that um, at the hands of Americans would do this. And so they see, they describe the torture, the waterboarding, uh, the cuts in the mouth, and they're really traumatized by this. And, and it makes them think maybe what we're doing here isn't so good, right? So they've been, they had bought into it the whole time thinking, you know, our culture is superior. We need to share this culture, spread this. And then towards the end of their stay, when they see this man, this priest having suffered torture, and this is not the only, there was another teacher who also witnessed torture. Um, And there were teachers, again, this is not a scandal, but in the Philippines who took up arms. There's this one guy, Glenn Evans, who had followed his brother um, to the Philippines to teach. And he lasts less than six months. He ends up killing. Uh, there's a, a boat of, of five people coming towards him. He had been fighting. Uh, so there were like divisions between Filipinos. He'd been joining his local community, fighting against the insurrectos is how he referred to them. And he shot, he took his Winchester shotgun and he shot as the five people were approaching, they jumped overboard, but he still shot and killed 
two children, uh, mm. 10 year olds. And this was actually part of the, the US policy was that it was okay that Filipino soldiers were allowed to kill people as young as 10. You know, if you thought they were younger than 10, you shouldn't. But if they were over than 10, shoot to kill. Of course, the teachers were not sent to kill, <laughs> nor were they sent to take up arms, right? Uh, but that is, in fact, what happened for some of them. Um, so, mm. yeah. And yeah. And, you know, and so talk kind of going back to sort of the whole idea of a teaching empire, right? Mm-hmm. Then, you know, mm-hmm. the title of the book is great because there's the the double meaning, right? Of sure. teaching empire and being a teaching empire. Right, right. So could you comment a little about your choice of the title? Yeah, yeah. And I have to thank my editors for the helping with the choice. Um, and it did help to sort of, uh, the book remained the same, but it, I think it really captured so cleverly <laughs> what I was, what I was trying to say. So that, that idea of teaching empire is, um, I, I really, with the book, uh, I wanted to bring the people into empire because a lot of times when you talk about nations and imperialism, it's absent of humans, it seems, right? So part of the book is there were teachers there, you know, I get into, you know, I, I try to use the schoolhouse as sort of like a micro site of empire. And I try to follow the day to day, what it was like, why they went, what it was like, and then what happened afterwards. So it is the teachers teaching empire. It's of course the it refers to the the nation and the imperial efforts uh, as well, um, and, and the culture that's intended to be, you know, transferred. Um, yeah, there's lots of meanings. I'm sure, you know, other there's there might be other thoughts, but um, yeah, thank. But my yeah, dad. it's it's great though because I mean, the moment we're in in American history over the controversies over curriculum and education mm-hmm. and banning books. And what should be taught and what should be uh, excised from curriculum. Sure. And, you know, we're seeing this being played out in board of education meetings all over the country. Mm -hmm. And it's not isolated to really just one state or one place. Mm -hmm. And this book really speaks to the, those really, those big philosophical issues. Right about the power of, of education. So, you know, what would you, you know, do you have any comment or any thoughts about that? Sure. Yeah. The, um, yeah, what's happening right now, it's, it's, you know, it's visceral. It's very, uh, it's very real, right? These conversations, who should have control over what is being taught, what is appropriate and what is not. Uh, and the, the culture wars right now, this is right. This is the crux of it is what should be taught. Uh, so, you know, in this time period of that I'm writing about, there was a, it was a very top down. The the assumption was we don't, we don't want to learn anything from the indigenous peoples that we're trying to assimilate. This is, we are trying to pour in the knowledge, right? Like Apollo Freer, we're trying to pour that knowledge in. Um, And right now in 2023, we're in a very different moment, right? Pedagogically, we often, the best classrooms, you learn from your students, you, you learn from the diversity of, of ideas and perspectives, and they're, in, a, in the best classrooms, there should be debate and, and you should be able to have different ideas. Um, but the, I think a lot of times headlines oversimplify what's happening or, or suggest that the intent of a curriculum is really, you know, malicious or something. And often that, that's, that's not the case. Um, so, 
Yeah, the, the, the boardrooms, uh, the board of ed, I was uh, recently, I've just finished a stint as a board of education members. Uh, and this issue did come up in our meetings as well. Um, or if you read the, you know, the recent headlines of uh, the, the African American studies, uh, AP history classes, uh, how, what a wonderful course, right? And, and important and critically important to learn. Uh, and then this becomes a, a, a politicized weapon right now. Mm -hmm instead of listening to what students actually want to learn you know they're craving this they're cra they crave women's history they crave african-american history native stuff like things that they may not have heard because if you can see yourself in the history it becomes more relevant and if you're only learning about one type of experience then you're you're really missing out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and you know so you know you mentioned earlier that the uh, that Deb Holland is uh, going around the country and listening to this. So, you know, you know, is there the potential for, for healing as a country um, by paying attention to the stories in your book and, and paying attention to what happened in the past? I, I, I hope so. I really do. Um... You know, it's certainly a step in that direction just by learning this history, acknowledging that these uh, that this happened, um, listening to the voices uh, and the stories and giving credence to them, to these, you know, Deb Holland, the Native families that are talking and sharing their stories, the mere act of listening and acknowledging that this is what happened is a step, right? It's, uh, there's a lot more work that needs to be done to heal. Um, but I think that's a really important step. Yeah. And, um, and to be able to have people understand, right? The, this should be, this should be, um, you know, part of a curriculum. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be the whole course, but like these stories about the boarding school experience or the fact that American teachers at the U.S. government thought it was a good idea to send teachers to a war zone to inculcate certain values. I think that matters. I think it matters. It tells us who we are as a nation. And, and um, you know, if we and we can then use that to understand where we are today and how we can move forward. I so. have to say that as a as a student myself, I never learned about that, uh, you know, maybe a little bit. You right. know, but it was never, I, I, it was never talked about when I was in school, really. Right. right. How many generations do you think of, of Native American? I mean, just from that article this morning, they seem to indicate there were like four or five generations of this one family that went through this. So right. how many years did this go on? Well, you know, it's interesting. They're actually, so it starts the, the federal boarding school movement starts in the 1870s, goes really for a century, but there are still native schools today, but the focus has 100% shifted. So while, you know, 100 and however many years ago, it was to erase Indian identity. Today, it's to celebrate indigenous diversity and in language and culture. So if you look at the application to these schools, uh, you can see that you know, there is that celebration of, so, so that's really exciting in terms of healing, right? Going back to your last question, that is certainly a way to empower and heal. Um, I don't remember. Yeah, so this is, you know, I feel like this book is just so important on so many levels for, for understanding, you know, we study history to understand ourselves and, sure. you know, um, that there's so many important lessons um, that we can help our students and and uh, help the country. 
you know, to move forward. You know, since we both teach women's history and American history, world history, you know, I want to remark that this book would be such a great fit in the curricula of all of these three courses. Did you did you have that in mind? <laughs> um, uh, I don't know if I had it in mind at the top of mind, maybe in the background. <laughs> it wasn't the motivating factor. I really just wanted to tell these stories. I, I was uh, so intrigued, especially um, you know, as I came across individual teachers' accounts, um, but but yeah, I agree with you. I think that it can be. I think they can. These these stories can be used in various classrooms. His, you know, whether it's education, history, uh, you know. So I've I do. I think um, I think these stories are really important. So I would I wouldn't have spent ten years on the book <laughs> uh, had I not thought thought it was important. Oh yeah, and and uh, you know, and I, I really I encourage everybody listening to to really take a look at the book. It's really fantastic, and I want to thank Elizabeth Etterum for joining me on the show today. Thank you for a great discussion. We've been talking with Elizabeth Etterum on her book Teaching Empire: Native Americans, Filipinos, and U.S. Imperial Education, 1879 to 1918, published by University Press of Kansas. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading. Thank you so much.